Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks so much for being here. Happy holiday weekend. I'm so honored that you'd spend part of your holiday weekend with us here at Bridgeway. If we haven't met before, my name is Joel. I have the privilege of serving as a lead pastor here. And man, again, we're so pumped that you are here with us. We are in the final week, as Aaron said, of a five-week series about five lies. See what we did there? Uh, five lies about being a Christian. And just a quick way of recap, we have covered some really exciting ground um, over these last four weeks. I think it's been so important because there's so many misconceptions, uh, lies that we often believe that change the way that we think and live about this whole thing about being a Jesus follower, being a church person, being a Christian. And so all the way back in week one, we talked about the Bible, the, the good book, and this lie that is so pervasive that um, haven't we moved past the Bible? Isn't the Bible just this old book full of rules? And if you do the good things and follow the rules, you go to the good place. You do the bad things, you go to the bad place. Uh, isn't that all that the Bible is? And we discovered the truth is better than that. And it's actually more challenging and it's better than that because the Bible is this library of sacred texts of people like you and me faltering along the way, uh, but people that God has been chasing after with his relentless love that we talked about or sang about just a few minutes ago. The Bible is this beautiful library of these texts and stories about God chasing after you with his love. And that's what the Bible is all about. Week two, we talked about the church. We talked about that thing that we're doing right now. We talked about the lie that's so pervasive in our culture that church is just a building that you go to. It's this sacred building uh, or it's this event that you attend weekly or the really religious people tend, attend every single week. And we discovered by looking at the very first time the word church was actually used in the Bible that it was never meant to be that. When Jesus talked about a church, he talked about a gathering a community, a better word, a movement of people that he was calling out to be light in dark places and to bring life into dead places and where we would take care of each other and we talked about one anothering one another. That's what the church is all about. Week three, we talked about this lie that um, God changes his attitude towards you based on your good behavior or your bad behavior. Like if you do a lot of good things in a day, God loves you. But if you do a lot of bad things, God turns his face from you and he's disappointed in you. Isn't being disappointed worse than being mad, All right? We talked about this reality that uh, God, actually his, his face towards you is love. And there's nothing you can do to earn it or to deserve it. He loves you anyway. Like I tell my two-year-old all, all the time, Jack, I love you and there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> that is just a picture of what God thinks about you, no matter what your past, whatever your pedigree, uh, no matter what you have done or will do. He loves you. Last week, our next-gen pastor, Nico Gruber, gave this incredible message, something that's so near and dear to the heart of Bridgeway and how we do church. But the lie last week was that um, if you're a Christian and like you have some doubts and questions, some things that you're trying to square up that are circles and it's hard for you to understand, uh, you should just be hush-hush about them. Don't talk about your doubts. Don't have doubts. Doubts are a sin. Like That's the lie last week. And we discovered that when Jesus came across people that doubted, oh, he was kind and compassionate towards them. And we discovered that your doubts and your questions, they're not the enemy of your faith, but silence is the enemy of your faith. So you should feel freedom and safety and security and uh, belonging when you ask these questions and you wrestle with the tough things in life. So that's where we've been the last four weeks, and we're not going to waste no more time. We're going to dive in to the fifth and final lie. These are the only five lies, right? And there's no more. We're going to do this series every year. We could have called it 30 lies. Then we would have found a 31st. Uh, but here's the fifth lie we're going to talk about this year in this annual series we'll be doing. Here it is right here. That spiritual leadership is only for the super spiritual. 
serving, uh, being in any kind of uh, influence or leadership over anybody else. It's only for those who are super spiritual. And you guys know who I'm talking about, the super spiritual people, the people that like read their Bibles every day and they like go into a closet and pray for 30 minutes and they don't fall asleep on the pillows that are there. The people that love coming to church every week and have to check in on social media that they're at church. Uh, People that are super spiritual. People that have it all together, like those doubts and questions we talked about. Super spiritual people don't have those doubts and questions, right? There's this super spiritual, like, Christian that you think of, and it's your mind thought bubble here, and it's like a Flanders from The Simpsons or somebody who's got it all together, no questions. They're living a perfect Christian life. Those are the super spiritual people. And the lie is that for God to use you, for you to serve, to have influence in somebody else's life, you've got to be super spiritual. And this is what you say, I'm just not there yet. I'm just not there yet. I'm not good enough. I don't have it all together. So I can't lead. I can't serve. I'll just continue to sit in a chair on Sunday morning and absorb until God figures me out (laughs) and I figure myself out. And then I'll move forward. I hear this lie all the time, you guys. Uh, When we ask you or when we nudge you or challenge you to take a step forward and to do something new to serve in our church or to serve our community, I hear this lie underneath of the responses all the time because I hear people say, I just don't have the experience. Like, I've never done that before. What does that look like? I mean, if I had done it before, I would do it. But people don't ever think the only way you ever do it is by, like, just doing it, right? It's the only way you get experience, right? It's like getting uh, turned down for a job for no experience experience. Give me experience, man. But you think, oh, I've just never done it before. I don't know what it looks like. So I don't have the, the background, the resume, the pedigree to serve. I hear people say it like that. I hear people say it often that they're just not ready yet. They're, they can't serve. They can't lead because their family of origin was a hot mess. Like they're like, hey, you don't understand. Like my family didn't even go to church. We weren't a church family. And I've just started coming to church. So I don't even know if we're a church family. And my family, we put the word fun in dysfunctional. And so I don't think you want us infecting the other people the church. I hear this kind of stuff all the time, but it's underneath this lie that spiritual leadership, it's only for the super spiritual, for somebody else. This is one I hear all the time underneath of this lie is you just like, I don't know enough. I don't have the Bible trivia figured out. I don't have enough knowledge to actually lead or influence somebody. Uh, I don't know how many times I've talked to somebody about serving in our Bridgeway kids environments for our uh, preschool or elementary kids or um, Bridgeway students for middle school or high school kids. And people will legitimately look me in the eyes and be like, I'm just not ready yet because what if they ask me about the book of Revelation? Dead serious, like they think that like the, the hot button thing that every 12-year-old girl really wants to talk about in life is well, those letters to the seven churches and who's the Antichrist and when's Armageddon? Like that's not what they're thinking about at all. But something inside of us feels like that's that, that fear that they're gonna ask us a question we don't know the answer to, so we're just not ready yet. We're not super spiritual enough. Oftentimes underneath this lie, people are saying, I'm not, it's not for me because I've got a bunch of failure in my past. Um, I've got a failed relationship in my past. I've got some failed marriages in my past. My relationship with my kids aren't great. My name's been in the newspaper before, and so you don't want me serving. I'm not super spiritual, and I can't do it. I hear that all the time. And then oftentimes, maybe more than anything else, what I really hear is people saying, oh, this is not for me. I'm not the super spiritual because I've got some current mess in my life. I'm trying to figure myself out first. And once I figure out all those dark places and all those habits that I hate, that I still do, once I figure that out, then I will serve because somehow the super spiritual people in their minds are just perfect human beings. 
So there's all these different ways that we understand this, but the lie is that we're just not there yet. We feel like we have to measure up to this perfect picture of a perfect Christian, and until we look like them in our minds, we'll just sit on the sidelines and we'll never get involved, we'll never take the next step. And my friends, what I wanna do with our time this morning is I wanna show you that the world that Jesus was born into, it believed this lie. But Jesus, in this beautiful, subversive, upside-down way, lived in that culture, and he turned it upside down. He said, enough of this. In my kingdom, in my way of life that I'm bringing to this earth, we're doing things differently. And he brings you a truth that is freeing. He brings us a truth that is challenging and beckons us to answer. But to do that, we're going to take a deep dive journey into the first century Jewish world of Jesus. And so, like, you guys ready to go on a little bit of journey with me this morning? Because we're going to go right into the world of Jesus. You're not, I'm not convinced, but we're going there anyway. So this is where we need to begin. My friends, Jesus was not a Christian. Let that, one, that went right over most of our heads, right? Jesus, my friends, was not a Christian. I was like way too old before I realized this, that like Jesus like started Christianity, but like he wasn't a Christian. Jesus was a Jewish man living in a Jewish culture, in a Jewish community, and he was the Jewish Messiah. So Jesus was not a Christian at all. Jesus was a Jewish person living in a Jewish community. And what we need to understand about the community that Jesus grew up in, it was this community called Galilee, where inside of Galilee, it was an Orthodox Jewish uh, community with Orthodox Jewish teachings. And uh, they were in this part of their story as God's people, the Jewish people, where they had been in exile because of their, uh, their decision to go away from the ways of God. And they had come back and they were living in their land, but now it wasn't the Babylonians or anybody else lording over them. It was the Roman Empire. And if you you don't know much about the Roman Empire, just think back to Russell Crowe and Gladiator. It's that kind of thing going on. And this Roman Empire was ruling over Jesus's people, the Jewish people, in this place called Galilee. And so the leaders in Galilee decided that we don't want to ever go back to exile. We need to stay true to what the Bible says or what the Hebrew scriptures say. And so we need to teach our kids and their kids and be people of the text, be people that are soaked in the scriptures so we don't just know it in our heads, but we know it down to our bones. And so it, it changes the way that we see the world. These people in Galilee, these leaders thought, we're just one generation away from people losing the way that God wants them to live. Can anybody say amen to that, right? This is what we think. This is why the next generation matters so much today too, right? But because of this, Jewish religious education was a huge deal. One Jewish historian put it this way in this first century community of Galilee. He said this, above all, we pride ourselves on the education of our children, and so they created, the world that Jesus was born into, they created this Jewish educational system for little Jewish boys and little Jewish girls to be taught by local rabbis or teachers of the Jewish scriptures so that they would grow up in the way of their faith and they would never forget who they were, where they came from, and who God was. And so to start in the Jewish educational system that Jesus was born into, which who's excited to talk about education in the first century? Let's go. We're going to call this Bet Sefer, which was the elementary school that Jesus and his brothers and sisters would attend. It, was, uh, it means the house of the book. And this was for little boys and girls that were six years old to 10 years old. And this was a way for them to get into learning about math and grammar, but everything was through the lens of the Bible. 
And this is what's wild. Inside of Bet Sefer, every Jewish boy and girl were challenged. And for them to graduate from Bet Sefer, they had to memorize the first five books of the Bible. Yes, the Torah or the first five books of the Bible in this community that Jesus was born into, they had to memorize it every word, every story, word for word. You know, most cultures and most communities didn't have the whole Old Testament there. And so they were lucky if they had just the five books, uh, the five first books of the Bible, and they were called to memorize this. And you might be thinking, how in the world could little kids memorize five books of the Bible? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. How could they memorize anything? And I'll just like little side here. Um, we memorize things all the time in our culture. We just are taught to memorize things that don't matter very much. Like some of you have already memorized all of the new Kanye West album, um, which is easy because like it says Dawn to 6,000 times in the first two songs. Um, or, you know, maybe if you're a Gen X or a millennial, like you memorize all of Dumb and Dumber, like every line of the movie. If you're a baby boomer, maybe you memorized all of American Pie by Don McLean, like all nine minutes of it. You got it all memorized. Or maybe if I haven't stepped on your toes yet, you've memorized all of your credit card numbers and the CVC codes on the back so you can do online shopping. Our culture is great at memorizing things, just a lot of things that don't really matter. But in this ancient oral culture, these little boys and girls were challenged and they were called to memorize all five books of the, the beginning of their Hebrew scriptures in the Torah. And that is exactly what they did in Bet Sefer. And this is a school that Jesus and all of his friends that we meet in the New Testament, they went through. And if they could memorize all of Torah, they graduated to the awkward middle school years of Jewish schooling. And it was called Bet Talmud, which was 10 years old to 14 years old. And they weren't supposed to just memorize the Torah, the first five books of the scriptures in this class. During these years, they were to memorize the entire Old Testament, or what's called the Tanukh. They were supposed to memorize all the way from Genesis to the Italian prophet Malachi at the end of the Old Testament. It's not really Italian prophet there. That's a joke. Thanks, Mom. Um, but inside of this, they were supposed to memorize all of the Old Testament to get it deep into their bones. But not only this, they were challenged to have this art of asking questions of the text. And like the rabbi inside of Bet Talmud would ask them the question, um, you know, who, who was the prophet that spoke to uh, this country? And the Jewish student couldn't answer with an answer. It was almost like Jeopardy style. They had to answer with a question and they would ask other questions. Because if you really ask questions and you can teach things, you really understand it from the inside out in a powerful way. And this was ages 10 through 14. There's this interesting part of the gospels where Jesus is actually lost from his parents. It's like a home alone moment here for multiple days. And where did Jesus's parents find Jesus? They find him in the temple. Let's take a look here in the gospel of Luke. After three days, they found him in the temple courts. Imagine three days. It's like, Kevin! Uh, after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers. And what was he doing? He was listening to them, and he was asking them questions. And everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. He was asking questions and answering questions. He was in the middle of Bet Talmud school. This is where Jesus was in his schooling in Galilee. Now, what I failed to mention was in Bet Talmud, from Bet Sefer, the first school, only 10% of students even graduated to Bet Talmud, where we find the answers and questions. And after Bet Talmud, less than 1% of Jewish boys graduated to the next level of their education process, and it's called Bet Midrash, or House of Study. 
And this was a fascinating place because like it was only the best of the best, only like the top scholars of this community would get to Bet Midrash. And it began at like age 14 or age 15. And the desire of every student that made it this far was to not only be a student, but to someday become a rabbi. Like it was like someone who loves college so much, they want to become a professor. They wanted to be the ones to teach and to lead the way. So that was the desire of everybody who made it to Bet Midrash. Less than 1% of Jewish boys made it there, only the best of the best. And here's the thing that we have to understand. Like rabbis in this, uh, this version of school, it got so intense and you had to understand the Bible so well, they would ask them really obscure questions about all of the scriptures. Like how many times is the word cistern used in the first 12 chapters of Genesis? Or what's Abram's son's third cousin's spouse's name? And no, I do not know the answers to those questions. But like these are the things that the rabbis would ask these students. But these students that made it this far, they would just literally follow around a rabbi. And they would, uh, in the Jewish culture, it was, it was told that they would follow them around so closely that they'd be covered in the dust of their own rabbi from following him around. And they were just hoping that the rabbi would turn to them and say these incredible words in this ancient language, lek hakarai, lek hakarai. Now, those words mean come and follow me. <laughs> A rabbi would say, I think that you can do what I can do, so come follow me. Come follow me, student, and be my Talmud, my disciple in this Bet Midrash school. We do enough Hebrew here this morning, right? And it was only the best of the best that a rabbi would turn and say, Lech Hakarai, come and follow me. What happened most of the times is that a student would want to follow a rabbi, and the rabbi would turn around after a few minutes or maybe a few days or a few weeks and be like, Son, you're, you know your Torah very well. You know the scriptures very well, but you can't do what I can do. You're not good enough. Go home to your father's trade and become whatever your father is and pray that you have babies someday that can be good enough to follow me. But you're just not good enough to do exactly what I can do. And rabbis were so, so particular because they were thinking about their legacy and they were thinking about what people would think about their school of thought and teaching that they would, there were only just a few that they would say that, I believe this kid can do what I can do. And so they would let them follow them. Most people said, sorry, not your luck. It's not in your blood. It's not in your bones to become my Talmud, my disciple. Go home to your father and your mother's trade. Now, inside of this strict world is where Jesus was born. And Jesus, my friends, was a rabbi as well. So what I want to do is I want to look at maybe some familiar texts in these gospel accounts that we have. Look at these familiar texts and see the way that Jesus says, oh, you're believing this lie that you have to have it all together. You have to be the best of the best to be used by me. So let's look at the gospel of Matthew chapter 4. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. My friends, after what we've just learned, why were they fishermen? Because they were dropouts. They weren't good enough to become rabbis. They weren't good enough to continue their schooling. And so they went back to their father's trade of fishing. And this is where Jesus sees Simon called Andrew, or Simon called Peter and Andrew. Sees they're fishermen because they weren't good enough. They were told they didn't have what it takes. Then Jesus comes up and talks to them. And he says these words, come follow me, lek hakarai. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed 
him. Jesus says, I believe you can do what I do. I believe that you can be just like me. Let Kakarai come follow me. Then they just dropped everything. Now, I've been around a lot of really bad church plays and some really bad Christian movies where it seems like Jesus has got this like zombie effect on people. Like Jesus walks up with his white robe and his like Miss America like slash right there and just walks and goes, come follow me in a creepy voice. And then they're like, must follow Jesus. Like we think that's what's really going on here because it seems so drastic. But after what we've learned about the world that Jesus was born into this morning, why did they drop everything and follow him? Because they were believing a lie in a narrative that they weren't good enough and that they had failed the test and there's nothing they could do. This is just their lot in their life to just be a fisherman. And Jesus says, no, I think you can do what I can do. Come, be my disciple, my Talmud. You can follow me. You can be like me. And they drop everything because it changed their story and their narrative forever come follow me. You can be like me. At the very next verses, we meet a couple other people here. Very next verse, verse 21. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother, John. Now in Mark chapter three, we learn a little bit more about James and John. We're told they were called the sons of thunder, which I think is like a really great name for a biker gang or a metal band or something like that. We don't really know. There's been so much conjecture from historians and theologians about what does that mean they were the sons of thunder? And we don't really know, but I think the best guess that I've heard, the best interpretation I've heard, in the ancient world, whenever there was a storm, it was, it was synonymous with chaos and with uh, darkness and with forces that were out of control. And so thunder and a storm, I think that James and John had a reputation for being pretty rough. <laughs> I think they were known for being passionate, for being fiery, for whenever they come into a room, it's kind of chaotic. They were probably pretty like uh, physical where they would beat some people up, so like some ancient bouncers or something like that. Um, but this is all that we know about James and John, and they've had a reputation. And let's just say that reputation of being chaotic was nothing that lined up with the way of rabbis in the first century. You had to be like calm. You had to be studious. You had to memorize. Sons of Thunder don't do that. But what does Jesus do when he comes across these guys that were told that they didn't have the stock, they didn't have what it takes to be his disciple? We learn this next. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. They were fishermen as well. Jesus called them and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Jesus says, Lech hakarai. I know that you've been told that you're not good enough, that you've got too much ink in the local synagogue newspaper about how you're rough and no, don't let your daughter date the sons of thunder. All these kinds of things. I've heard about all these kinds of things. But I say it, I see you and you can do what I can do. Come and follow me. Come be my Talmud, my disciple. <laughs> he says, it doesn't matter what your reputation is, what your past is, what kind of mess that you live in. I believe in you and you can come follow me. <laughs> and what I love here is that you see that they're fishing with their father, Zebedee, and they immediately left the boat and they leave their father and followed him. And we don't see anything in the text about they go back in, uh, you see Zebedee go back into town and he's like, Oh, those kids, they never follow through with what they're supposed to do. They left me here without any work, any help at all. You never see that actually happen. It's actually more likely, based on what we've learned this morning, that Zebedee goes back into town the next morning, and he's in the marketplace. He's like, don't have my boys with me this morning. Guess what? <laughs> A rabbi said to go follow him. They were told for so long that they were the wrong type to be God's followers, but this rabbi said, I believe you can do what I can do. He's going, they're going to go be a part of this rabbi's crew. And something about this rabbi makes me think they're gonna change the face of the world forever. And he was so proud as a father 
That's what I imagine. One other encounter that's so powerful for us is uh, another one of Jesus' early Talmuds or disciples, a guy by the name of Philip. And we see Philip in John chapter 1 here. And this gospel account, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Lech hakarai, come follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. And this is one of those verses we just skip over all the time. They were from the town of Bethsaida. Like, what does that mean? Uh, We don't really have that on our maps here. We don't really understand it. But what I need you to understand about Bethsaida is that it was a small, insignificant kind of town. Less than 600 people lived in this small fishing village. Um, And not to be offensive to anybody's, like, uh, town or anything like this, it'd be like uh, Peter and Andrew and um, Philip were from, like, Plevna, or they were from Bennett Switch, or dare I say Greentown. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Waiting for the booze from my Greentown mafia that are here this morning. <laughs> Look at that. That's amazing. But anyway, he was from a small town, like a podunk place. This is where Philip was from. But Jesus says, I see your history. I see your lineage and where you're from. And none of that matters. I believe you can be like me. Come and follow me and do the things that I do. And you guys, this changed the course of Philip's life. And it changed the course of human history. Now, outside of the scriptures, church tradition and church history teaches us that Philip and his story took him to a place called Hierapolis after Jesus was killed and resurrected and then ascended to the right hand of God the Father. Philip goes to this place called Hierapolis. And Hierapolis was this sprawling metropolis. It was like a cultural center of the Roman Empire. It was this incredible place where over 100,000 people lived in. So Philip's from a place of 600 people. Hierapolis is 100,000 people at like maybe minimum that are living there. And there's debauchery and all these worship of these different gods. And not only was there worship of the different gods, there was worship of the emperor of Rome at the time. Here's a picture of what's called the Domitian Gate in Hierapolis. It's what it looks like today. Now, it's called the Domitian Gate because the Roman emperor during this time was a guy by the name of Domitian. And he actually, uh, and all Roman emperors during the first century, they didn't just consider themselves to be great rulers. They actually called themselves God. They called themselves gods. They called themselves son of gods. And they wanted people to worship them as the Roman emperor of the time. And so this is Domitian, who's the Roman emperor in Hierapolis, one of their flagship cities. He sets up this gate, and he says, anybody who wants to trade and sell and buy food inside of the city of Hierapolis has to walk through this gate. And check this out. This is where things get really interesting to me. To walk through the gate was to say that you are worshiping Domitian as God, and you would get this little stamp on your hand that said Domitian is king, and you'd get a stamp on your forehead that's saying Domitian is my God. They get these little marks. And do you know what early Christians called Roman emperors? They called them the beasts. They would have to get the mark of the beast, Domitian, to walk in, to buy and sell in this town. Sidebar on sidebar, maybe the mark of the beast isn't named Moderna or Pfizer or Johnson & Johnson. Maybe it's more Domitian or something like that. Let's step off of that. I'm going to pay, pay for that later. But for anybody to walk into this community to eat, to feed their family, they had to take the mark of Domitian to say that he is king. Now, this is where Philip comes in. Philip walks up with his family and with his followers of Jesus that are following him. And he walks up to the gate, stands right before it, church tradition teaches us. He looks at it, 
And then he deliberately takes a step to the right and walks around the gate. No mark on his hand, no mark on his forehead. He walks around and walks into the sprawling city of Heropolis, this little kid from Podunk of the ancient world. And his family looks at him and his followers look at him like, teacher, um, Philip, we're all going to die. We're not gonna be able to eat and feed our families. How are we going to live in this city that's a center of all this ancient like pagan worship and everything? How are we gonna live? And church tradition teaches us that Philip looked at his family and his disciples. He said, I saw my rabbi feed 5,000 with some loaves of bread and some fishes. We are provided for. And what's even crazier to me, you guys, is that history tells us less than 10 years after Philip walked in with his friends and his family into the city of Heropolis, this place that was once the Las Vegas of the ancient world, full of debauchery and all this worship of Domitian and other Greek gods, ended up being a Christian center of the ancient world, where they would send missionaries out across the world to tell people about Jesus because of Philip's boldness and Philip believing that he could do what Jesus told him he could do. Somebody from Podunk, (laughs) from a two-horse town, I don't even think that's really the phrase, (laughs) could walk in, defy the emperor, and turn the world upside down. And maybe we're sitting here today because of his boldness And I believe that Philip had that boldness because his rabbi, Jesus, looked at him and said, come follow me. I believe in you more than you can possibly imagine. Now, there are a couple beautiful and challenging implications I don't want us to leave with. This is not just a sermon about the educational system of the life of Jesus. (laughs) But here's some beautiful and challenging implications. The first one is this. We cannot miss this. That I believe Jesus believes in you more than you believe in yourself. (laughs) I've heard sermons and messages my whole life, and I've given a lot of them, challenging people to believe in Jesus, to have faith in Jesus, and that is paramount. But I don't think that we can miss this, that not only are we called to believe Jesus and believe in Jesus, we're called to believe that Jesus believes in us. Do you know that Jesus sees more in your life and through your life than you see of yourself? And all those discrediting voices that you tell yourself, all those things that people have told you, say you're not good enough, you don't have the pedigree, you've got too much of a mess in your past, you're too much of a mess right now, all those voices Jesus hushes and says, I believe that you can do what I can do. Come follow me and see amazing things. Lek hakarai, I believe that you can do what I can do. Come follow follow me. There's this encounter, we're just talking about Philip in the Gospel of John later. Um, we see Jesus after he's doing this incredible teaching. Uh, Philip is like confused by the teaching and then Philip just says this to Jesus in chapter 14 of John. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Lord, just show us the Father. In other words, like that's a lot of confusing stuff, Jesus. Just sh- show us who God is and that'll be enough. We don't have to get to the nitty gritty stuff. And you almost like see a couple verses later, Jesus sort of like Face palm a little bit, and he says this in response to Philip. This is mind blowing stuff. He says, Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. This is hard for us to wrap our minds around, right? But Jesus is talking not just about Philip and the first century followers. He's talking about you and I today. When we trust Jesus, we'll see even greater, bigger, more beautiful things happen in our world than what Jesus even accomplished himself. This is what's true. Jesus believes in you. He sees more in you. He has a bigger vision for your life than even you have yourself. 
And whether it's we're too young, we're too old, we've got too much to learn, we don't understand enough, we've got too much of a mess in our past, we've got too much of a mess in our present, Jesus hushes all those voices and he says, I believe that you can do what I can do. So live that way and come follow me. Even greater things than this. Jesus believes that for you. You don't have to clean yourself up first. You don't have to have everything figured out first. Come and follow me. You can do what I can do. Jesus believes in you more than you believe in yourself. And the last implication, which I think is so important, and I think very prescient to you this morning, is this right here. That availability is your greatest ability. You being available to be used by God, you living your life with open hands, saying, God, I am available for whatever you want. Man, it is your greatest ability. It is more important than you understanding the Bible inside out, being able to pass a theology test 100%. It's more important than the, the situations you find yourself in or your family of origin. The most important thing, your greatest ability is your availability, and I love that the scriptures are full of these stories that tell us this. They're not the exception, you guys. They are the rule. David in the Old Testament had an affair and then had the person they had affairs with husband murdered to cover his tracks. Noah got drunk after he landed on the ark, probably from like some survivor's guilt stuff going on, but he had a drinking problem. Gideon was insecure that God could use him the way that God told me would. Thomas, one of Jesus' followers, had all these doubts and questions and skepticism and felt like he had to figure it all out. Martha worried worried about everything. Moses stuttered and he was terrified of public speaking. Abraham was very, very, very old and God still used him in a way of saying, if you're not dead, I'm not done with you. You know what they all have in common? All these stories of the people that have gone before us, they're all a hot mess. But they all said, here I am. Open hands, I'm available to be used by you. Let me ask you maybe some like questions that make you feel a little bit uncomfortable this morning because I love you. Do you have a rhythm of your life where you rhythmically give yourself away? Or are you giving God the loose change of your calendar? Like, are you giving God like, oh God, I'll be available to serve you and to serve other people if we get home at a decent time on Saturday night? Well, God, I'm available like maybe like once every six weeks, but that's the only time that I'm going to give you. The rest of it, I'm booked up. <laughs> Are you giving God just the loose change of your time? Or is God saying, come follow me, and you're dropping it, and you're saying, okay, I'm available. Hands wide open, my brokenness and all that comes with it, I am available. Are you available to be used by God as he calls you? Don't use the excuse that you're not good enough because Jesus extinguishes that excuse. Are we giving God the loose change of our time? Are we saying, God, you come first and I'll fit everything else around it. We're gonna end the service this morning with a song I thought would be very appropriate and powerful for us to put on our lips. It's a song called Available. And the chorus of this song, it's more than just lyrics of a song. It's very much like a prayer. It says, I hear you call, and I am available. Man, I've been praying this week and through the first service um, that for some of you, you would have those walls broken down in your heart. You would let those lies that you're not good enough or you're not super spiritual, you'd have those fall to the wayside, and you would be able to say full-heartedly, clear-eyed, 
God, I'm available to you. Use me. Whatever it is, my answer is yes. Yes. 